Our scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 and verse 22. All this time, Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples out for the kill. He went to the chief priest and got arrest warrants to take to the meeting places in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. Then skipping down to verse 22, we read these words after several days later. But their suspicions didn't slow Saul down for even a minute. His momentum was up now, and he plowed straight into the opposition, disarming the Damascus Jews and trying to show them that this Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Um, my name is still Reed Kappel, uh, and so it's, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Uh, if you are new, we've been going through the book of Acts uh, for the past several weeks, and we come to a very, very interesting story in the history of the church. Uh, but before we jump in there, uh, I, I'm sure, you know, many of you have heard stories before where, you know, you're, you're, you're convinced that they're factually true. The veracity of the claims of the story are undeniable, and yet there's something about the story that causes you to say, there's, there's no way that actually happened. There's no way this is actually a true story, even though you can't deny that, that it's true. And, and one, one story, uh, for instance, is the story of the James twins. Maybe you're, you've heard of this story before, uh, but two identical twins uh, were born and separated at birth. They were adopted by two different families. Uh, these families did not know each other. They, they lived about 40 miles apart. Both boys were named James in these separate families. Both boys grew up to be uh, work in law enforcement. Both Jameses married a Linda. Both Jameses had a son named James. Both divorced their wife, Linda, and both remarried a woman named Betty, and both had a dog named Troy. It's uh, like, you, go look it up, Google it, the James Twins, it's fascinating, it's no less true, and yet you're sitting here thinking, there's no way that happened. How can it possibly be true? And there are all these stories. That, I mean, I'm sure some of you even experienced stories like this. One from, from my life, as I was kind of thinking about this whole uh, text in the sermon, when I was a sophomore in college uh, at K-State, I was driving my, my baby blue pickup, my Mazda B2200, with uh, hot pink racing stripes on the side, which is an unbelievable story in and of itself that I got married with that vehicle. But um, <laughs> But I'm driving down Bluemont Avenue, and it's a beautiful spring day, and I look, and it's this serene kind of scene. I see a Ford Explorer tipped over on the passenger side in the front yard of this house off to my right, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden, I see a guy emerge out of the driver's side door that's facing skyward. And so clearly, this just happened. So I pull over to find out what's going on, and I ask him if he's okay, but he's panicking, and I finally realize the reason he's panicking is because his girlfriend is pinned under the car on the other side. And so we rush around to the side and her legs are underneath this Ford Explorer. And he's panicking, I shout for someone to call 911 and I just react and I get under this Explorer and I begin to lift it. And I sit, like, look at me here, okay? Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I get it off the ground, but I don't have the leverage or the angle to flip it. And then all of a sudden, this other guy appears by my side and just says, let's do this, three, two, one. And we flip this Ford Explorer off onto all four wheels. And then the ambulance shows up, rushes this lady to the hospital, she's okay. I get back into my truck and drive off wondering, what on earth did I just do? <laughs> And still, as I'm retelling the story, I'm like, did that actually happen? And it did. And, and I hope you trust me enough to know that like, I'm not just going to make up some story like this. It's a story that's true, but, but it still causes me, and I'm sure you, to say there's no way that happened. 
And even as we heard the scriptures read, as we see in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we see Paul, the apostle, or before he's the apostle, he's Saul of Tarsus, and he's this great persecutor of the church. And then somehow, in between verses 2 and 22, Paul is now all of a sudden this bold proclaimer of the message of Jesus, the one that he was persecuting just moments earlier. And we are caused to ask the question, what happened? How do we explain and make sense of this unbelievable change that the most predominant persecutor of the church grew up to be and turned into the greatest proclaimer of the gospel the church has known? The greatest theologian the church has known, the author of almost 30% of the New Testament, how do we explain this unbelievable change? And it's this change that I want us to look at as we turn to Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. But I want to pray for us as we jump into God's word. So let us hear, let us pray together before we hear uh, from the Lord through his word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do pause in this moment that we ask that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear the truth of your word. Lord, may we believe that, that through you, you are capable of accomplishing more than what we can ask or think or imagine, that you can transform the darkest of lives and you can bring about life out of death. Lord, may we believe that. Speak to us in this time through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, just to kind of set the stage for us, um, we have in Acts chapter 7, the story of Stephen, who is the first martyr of the Christian church. And if you recall in that story, at the end of chapter 7, we're introduced to this character, Saul of Tarsus, who is the Apostle Paul. And so just for the sake of simplicity and clarity, we will refer to him as Paul just kind of throughout the duration of the sermon. So, so Paul is there. He is present for the, uh, for the execution of Stephen. And Paul gives approval of Stephen's death. And then what follows after that, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us as he opens up chapter 8 that a widespread persecution was launched against the church in Jerusalem of which Paul was complicit and involved in. And Luke goes on to say in, in chapter 8, verse 3, that Paul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So when we're talking about the story of Paul's conversion, it is more, it, it's, a, it's a great understatement to say this is the story of Paul's conversion from Judaism to Christianity. Because Paul was not just disinterested in Christianity. Paul was not just a strong critic of Christianity. Paul was, in many ways, seen by the early church to be a terrorist. Because, I mean, his very breath, as Luke says, brought about death and murder. This man was, was, was very much a great threat to the early church. And so as Luke is telling us the story of Paul, this terrorist, he is sent, he, he, he basically finds out the names of some Christians in Damascus, and he heads that way so that he can kind of crack some Christian skulls and throw them in prison. And on his way, there is this radical encounter that Paul has with the risen Christ Jesus. And the words are recorded for us in, Luke's, uh, in, in Acts chapter 9 by Luke's words, and he says this. Now as he, referring to Paul, as he went on his way... He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, which is Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now clearly Jesus is trying to get Paul's attention here. He's trying to awaken him to the reality that, that Paul's pathway towards righteousness is actually not the path that God wants for him. 
And, and it's hard for us to see in, in our English translations, but, but when we see that repetition of Paul's name, it's not, it's not God shouting, it's not Jesus shouting or yelling at him out of anger, it's not a threat. You know, it, it's the difference between if I'm trying to get my child's attention, you know, it, it, when I say like, Pearl, Pearl, like it's different from shouting with a sense of urgency or anger or frustration. There's a difference between that and me saying, oh, Pearl, Pearl. And that's the tone that Jesus is expressing towards Paul in this moment. It's a tone of tenderness. It's a tone of compassion. He is, he is pursuing Paul in this moment. And so we see the compassion of Jesus even towards this great enemy of the church at this time. But in addition to that, we also see the compassion of Jesus as he identifies, I don't know if you noticed that, he identifies with the very church that Paul is persecuting. Did you see that in, in, verse, in verse five? It says, and he said, this is Paul speaking, who are you, Lord? And he said, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus so identifies with his bride, the church, that to persecute the church, to persecute Christians, is to persecute and to an attack Jesus himself. And yet, Paul is utterly blind to how his religious behaviors are self-destructing how his religious behaviors are actually keeping him away and apart from the very God he thinks he's worshiping and being obedient to. It is Paul's religious blindness that is keeping him from seeing clearly, and oddly enough, what does Jesus do? He blinds Paul physically to awaken him to his religious blindness that is keeping him from the truth. Now, the story goes on where we see Jesus uh, coming to, in a vision to another disciple by the name of Ananias. And this is a different Ananias from the one that we learned about earlier in Acts. And so Jesus comes to Ananias in a vision and he tells him, I'm going to send Paul your way and I want you to pray for him and heal him. <laughs> to which Ananias essentially responds by saying, I beg your pardon? You know, because I mean, he's, he's well aware of who this guy is. He knows who Paul is. He recognizes the authority and the threat that he poses against the church at this time. And Ananias, he responds by saying, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So, I mean, basically what, what Jesus is saying to Ananias, he's saying, Ananias, take this T-bone steak necklace around your you know, neck and go play with this Rottweiler over there. Like that's what he's inviting him to do. He's sending him into a very dangerous situation and Ananias recognizes that. And he's like, do you realize who this guy is and the authority and the power that he has? But I love how Jesus responds. In verse 15, he says, go. For he, referring to Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Essentially what Jesus is saying is like, yes, I recognize the authority that you think Paul has, but I am, I've got this, Ananias. He is actually a part of my plan. He will submit to my authority. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. This Rottweiler I'm sending you to will actually be a part of my mission in this world. And so Ananias, he does, he trusts Jesus and he moves forward he, and he goes and he encounters Paul and he prays for Paul and I'm sure as he lays his hands on him, his hands are trembling in fear knowing the one that he's praying for. But notice how Ananias greets this supposed enemy of the church. In verse 17 it says, and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. 
The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias, Ananias calls Paul, the persecutor of the church, the hater of everything Jesus, he calls him brother. The very man who wouldn't have thought twice about throwing Ananias' own brother into prison for believing in Jesus. And Ananias calls him his brother. And as Luke continues the story of this unbelievable change, we see that, that Paul is radically altered. As we see in verse 20, it says, And immediately, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Which is just, I mean, again, if, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard this story, you're familiar with it, but, but it is no less unbelievable. It's, no less, it's, it's just, I mean, how do we make sense of it? What, what, what account can be given to explain how this great enemy of the church is now one of its greatest advocates, one of its greatest preachers, will grow up, not grow up to be, but, but becomes one of the greatest theologians, missionaries, and church planters in history? It's really, it's truly shocking. And the shock of this actually doesn't, doesn't uh, fade very quickly. As we know about Paul's kind of ministry timeline, we can gather it from other letters that he's written, we know that after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem about three years later. So three years have passed since this miraculous, unbelievable change, and yet the disciples still don't believe that he's legitimate. It's like, I think that you're a spy. I feel like they don't buy his real change. In verse 26, it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem about three years later, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. They were still not buying it, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And really, I mean, you can't blame them for having this kind of questioning, this reluctance to embrace him as a brother. Because, I mean, more, more than likely, Paul is complicit and responsible for the imprisonment and potentially the execution of some of their friends and family members. And so even if they do believe that he actually has been changed by Jesus, how hard is it to embrace him and extend a hand of fellowship, invite him to the, to the dinner table as a brother, knowing what he has done? And yet there's still no denying the fact that this man whose very breath brought about threat and murder, as, as Luke records for us, is in this time with his breath proclaiming the goodness, the good news of Jesus being the Son of God, that he is the Messiah sent from God to be the forgiveness of our sins. And Luke, as he concludes this story of Paul's conversion, we see this kind of beautiful picture, this kind of a summation or a completion in some ways of what Jesus promised in Acts 1. But in verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it, the church, multiplied. Now this story is unbelievable. And, and, and while, while it is, it's no more powerful than the story that we looked at, the story of the resurrection, the story of Jesus defeating death, obviously the resurrection is more powerful. But there's a sense in which Paul's conversion, it creates a sense of plausibility for us that belief in Jesus is possible. I mean, how do we account, how do we explain the transformation of Paul of Tarsus? This guy going from the, most, the, the, greater, the greatest persecutor of the church in this time to one of the greatest proclaimers of the gospel. How do we make sense of it? 
And, and, and maybe, maybe in some ways, like how do, how do we connect his story to our story? Because for some of you who are Christians, you're wondering like, okay, this is a great story and all, but like what on earth does Paul's radical transformation have to do with my story? Like my story is not even remotely close to Paul's story. What do I have to draw from this? I mean, like his, his story is great. It's radical. It's, it's completely unbelievable. My story is kind of like this kind of garden variety testimony. How can I possibly compare myself to Paul? What connection does this have? Or, or perhaps for some of you who, who are not Christians, you're looking at the story and you're saying, I just don't buy it. I, I don't believe this kind of change is possible. I, I don't believe that, that someone can go from this kind of extreme hatred of the church to being a proclaimer of it. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Well, both of these thoughts, I think, stem from the same root. They stem from a failure to believe that through Jesus, anyone can be an unbelievable story. Both of these ideas, that for, for the Christian who says, well, that's Paul's story, my story's not that great. I mean, it's just really simple. And for, for the non-Christian who would say, I just don't even believe that this kind of change is even possible. Both of them are rooted in a failure to believe that through Jesus, anyone can become an unbelievable story. And what I mean by that is, so, so Paul is unique. I, I don't want to deny that. Paul is unique in the sense that he was, he was appointed by Jesus to be the apostle of the Gentiles. So he's got a legit resume, okay, that's a little bit maybe better than ours. But just because Paul's story of change is unbelievable, the story of any Christian who comes to faith in Christ, any person who comes to faith in Christ, their story is no less more unbelievable than Paul's. And I think we tend to look at that because we, we struggle to recognize and understand, for, for those of us who are Christians, we struggle to see how serious and severe the danger of religious blindness is in our life. We, we look at our stories and say it's not as radical as Paul's, but it's because we don't see how serious and how dangerous the threat of religious blindness is in our lives today. We don't always see that one of the best ways to be far from God is to actually try and be as good as you possibly can. The reason why anyone can become an unbelievable story through the gospel of Jesus is that in the gospel, God moves us from religion to Jesus. The reason why anyone can be an unbelievable story is because God in the gospel moves us from religion to Jesus. And let me explain what I mean. You see, Paul, Paul had this remarkable religious resume. You know, I mean, he, he describes it in various places in his letters. He talks about how he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is to say that, that he is a pure, uh, a pure Hebrew, that there, he is a true member of the nation of Israel, which is a big thing in the Jewish community. He talks about how he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. See, Paul was trained by, by the famous Pharisee Gamaliel, which we were introduced to earlier in Acts. Paul began his training as a rabbi at the age of 15. So, I mean, so the brother knew his Old Testament, okay? Like, he understood it. He had it memorized front and back. He knew what he was doing. And in fact, Paul was, being a Pharisee, being a rabbi, he was very devout to following the Old Testament law, very religiously. But Paul, even in all of his religious perfection, even in all of his study and all these things, Luke is trying to show us that all of Paul's religious resume, his religious lineage, is not what compels Jesus to go after him. It is nothing about Paul's religious accounts or history or experiences that compels Jesus to love him and pursue him. It's actually these things that keep him from Jesus. 
You see, when we talk about Paul, I mean, Paul was a devout rabbi. And like, if you were to equate a sports fan to being religious, you know, like the, the average Pharisee would be kind of like, like this guy. I think we got a picture like, you know, you've maybe seen this guy at the K before, you know, clearly a big fan, clearly devoted. He knows his team. But Paul is in like a different category. Paul is this extreme fan that's more described like this. Like this would be the Apostle Paul. That's, that's Paul, okay? Like he is devout. He's in a completely different category in regards to his religious tenacity. And yet, with all of Paul's religious devotion, with all of his theological training, with all the ways in which he is held to the law with great devotion, Luke wants us to see that he is still far from God. Luke wants us to understand that it is Paul's religious blindness that puts him in a much more dangerous spot, even in comparison to the conversion story we heard earlier of the, uh, the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. I, mean, I, think, I think Luke wants us to see the contrast of these two conversion stories. You, you have the Ethiopian eunuch who's an outsider by all intents and purposes. I mean, he is not a part of the nation of Israel. He was not trained in the Hebrew scriptures. And what do we see? He's, he's exploring the, the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah and he has questions about it and Philip comes along and sits with him and he shares the truth of Jesus and he believes and he's converted. It's a remarkable story. But then it's contrasted with Paul's conversion. And what does Jesus have to do to get, to get a hold of him? I mean, he has to use a laser light show just to wake up this guy and help him understand that his religious blindness is what has kept him from the truth of the God that he thinks he's worshiping. But again, Jesus didn't make himself known to Paul because of Paul's religious resume, because of Paul's religious lineage. It's not because, man, Paul, you've studied the Bible really well. Man, Paul, you, you've come from a long line of believers. I want you to be a part of my plan. But rather, Jesus' pursuit of Paul is in spite of all of his religious activity. There is nothing about Paul's religious family tree, his religious practices, his religious education that compelled Jesus to so tenderly pursue him. In fact, it is these very things that Paul boasts in that keeps him from Jesus. And this is true for, for us today. When, when we think about religious people today, and this may, this may speak to some of us in this room, I don't doubt that it does. We tend to mistake religious activity with genuine affection and faithfulness to God. We tend to think that because I do all these things, because I've memorized scripture, and because I come to church every single Sunday, and because I've done all these things that God now has extended favor towards me, and that that is the basis upon which I am loved and forgiven and called a child of God. And the dangerous truth that we convince ourselves in telling us that is that we put all of the effort on us when that is actually the thing that keeps us far from God. It's like equating a glamorous wedding with, with a vibrant and healthy and loving marriage. As glamorous as the wedding and the reception and the ceremony may be, as much as there's the display of romance, that does not mean that the marriage will be fruitful, that it will not be, it doesn't prove that it will be rooted in love. It does not prove that there is a commitment and a covenant Perhaps the concern that I have or the concern that I do have for us is that some of us are in the same situation as Paul, blinded by our religiosity, thinking that it is our religious behavior that gets us into a status of being loved and forgiven by God, when in fact, 
That's actually the thing that keeps us from him. Tim Keller in his, his book, The Prodigal God, he puts it so well. He says, we use God for our own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. The reason, the reason why anyone can be an unbelievable story is because God is the one who brings about the change and not us. It is not through our religious effort. It is not through our amazing lineage of of family members who have been Christians for a long, long time. If, if that is kind of how we think, if we think that the reason why God loves us and forgives us and accepts us is based on our religious activity, we are in serious danger of being far from God because we are religiously blind. Because if you're banking on your accomplishments to earn God's favor, to earn his forgiveness, when that is only made available to you through Christ Jesus, you are in a dangerous place. It's the place that Paul was in, and it's why Jesus had to awaken him in such a radical way, because his religious blindness was more dangerous than the Ethiopian eunuch who was far from God in regards to his lineage, in regards to his activities. And so we all, if, if, if this speaks to you, we, we need to be honest in, in checking ourselves, in praying that God would awaken us to our religious blindness to help us see that that in all of this kind of religious activity, it is doing nothing to earn God's favor. And if that is the basis upon which you think God will forgive you, you will find that your work will never be finished. But when we understand that our forgiveness from God is granted to us from the work of Jesus on the cross who declares it is finished, that is the hope we have. When all of the effort is on us, we will find that we will be as religiously blind as Paul. And so our prayer, my prayer for for those of us who might find ourselves in that religiously blind spot is that we would find the freedom that comes in trusting Jesus as the only basis of our righteousness, our only basis of forgiveness. That we would, as, as the hymn writer says, that when he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. That is why we can be faultless to stand before the throne. But if you aren't a Christian, perhaps what what, what has kept you from Jesus is actually this belief that that you you can't be good enough. You've allowed this religious activity idea to say, you know what, I I could never do that stuff. I could never be good enough to, to earn God's favor and approval. And let me tell you, you are absolutely right. There is nothing on earth you can do to convince God to love you and forgive you through your effort. In fact, that is precisely the reason why you should come to Jesus. It is the thing, it is the prerequisite. It is not figuring out how to get my life together so that Jesus will love me. It is the prerequisite, recognizing there is nothing we can do to earn his favor. I mean, even as we sang this morning, come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. 
For Jesus himself, when we understand even why he came, he did not come for the healthy. He did not come for the righteous, but for the sick, for the sinner. He came for those who are not just on their deathbed, but for those who have already been dead and put in the ground. The good news of the gospel is that we are rescued on the basis of faith alone through Christ alone. That is our only hope. And because of this, everyone can be an unbelievable story. But what's even more amazing than than God moving us from religion to Jesus is that God, through Christ Jesus, moves us from death to life. Yes, it's unbelievable. When we look at the story of Paul, it's unbelievable that a terrorist could become a preacher. It's unbelievable to think that, that an enemy could become a family member. But it's even more unbelievable that a dead person could be brought back to life. And that is the story of every Christian And so when we look at Paul's story and say, man, his story is radical and wild. Man, when I hear Abby share her story, man, that's wild. I just, that's not my story. You need to hear very clearly that you were dead in your sins. Dead is dead, no matter how dead you think you may be. Dead is dead. You were dead in your sins and you've been brought back to life. Don't ever believe that you don't have an unbelievable story. Dead is dead no matter how you spin it. Like, like, think of it this way. If, if you encountered two dead people that were resurrected from the dead, and, and one died because they choked on a Lego, and the other died because they were eaten by a bear, like, you wouldn't be more impressed by the bear eater or the, the one who's eaten by the bear in their resurrection. Like, death is death. It doesn't matter the manner of your death that gives death its power. In the same way, the manner in which you find yourself sinning is not what gives sin its power. For someone to go from death into life For someone to recognize that they are a sinner in need of Jesus, that is an unbelievable story no matter how you spin it. The fact that anyone is able to recognize that they are a sinner in need of grace and to see Jesus as the only hope in life and death, that is an unbelievable story. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God can make anyone an unbelievable story because he moves us from religion to Jesus and he moves us from death to life, which I believe is why Paul, the man whose unbelievable story we heard this morning, penned these words in Ephesians 2. When he's referring to all of us, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not maimed, you were not injured, you were dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then that beautiful, beautiful word. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Friends, if you have given your life to Christ Jesus, What that means is that you stand entirely upon his completed work on the cross on your behalf. That you boast in his resurrection to be the the hope that you have in defeating death and facing death whenever it comes. And it means that your story truly is an unbelievable story. And the great news is that just as Jesus pursued Paul and awakened him from his religious blindness, Jesus stands ready to say your name, to repeat your name with that same tender voice. He stands ready to forgive you, 
to move you from death to life, to move you from religion to Jesus. The question is, are you ready to let him make you an unbelievable story? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause in this moment and we ask, Lord, that by your spirit you would awaken us to our religious blindness. Lord, would you show us where we have sought to establish our right standing before you through what we do, through how we perform, through how obedient we might try to be. Lord, may we see the foolishness of that thinking and may we come to understand that it is nothing in my hand I bring but simply to the cross I cling, that that is the truth we need to believe in to find hope in this world. Lord, I pray that you would awaken those who are far from you, that you would shine the light of the truth of the gospel into their lives, that they might hear you say to them and call their voice repeatedly, that you stand ready to forgive them and draw them in to make them an unbelievable story. Lord, would you do this now? Would you transform lives for the glory of your name and for the good of your people? We pray in Christ's name, amen. I love singing that song because hearing that song and being able to sing it with you is just a good reminder because think about his love never failing. I get it cognitively, right? I understand that I'm saved by grace, but throughout my week, throughout my day-to-day, I'm often caught just like Reed was talking about where I think that my religious activity can earn God's love or earn the approval of man. And I find find myself striving for that, to earn approval, to seek God's love. And yet his love is something that's offered, not based off the things that I do, but the thing that Christ has done for me, right? Man, and if, you are, if you're new here and you might have identified on the other end of that story where you think there's nothing I can do to earn God's love or I, I can't get there, I'm not good enough on my own, and, and the answer to that is, yes, it's true, we can't. Uh, there's nothing we can do, but Christ has done something for us. And if you'd like to talk more about that, um, Reed's going to be in the back, he'd love to ta- talk with you, or I'll be up here up front, um, we'd love to talk more. But it's in light of that reality that I want to give our benediction, um, our good word for the road. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul written in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Go in peace.